Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Redemption Hill podcast. We are a community of people learning the way of Jesus to bless our city of Boise, Idaho, and beyond. Redemption Hill is a unique place. We are a collective of micro churches that do life together throughout the week and gather on Sundays to grow, worship, and celebrate what God is doing in our city. You are invited to join us Sundays at 1030 a.m. in the Boise Friends Church Gymnasium, where you can find the community you need in any season of your life. More details can be found at redemptionboise.org. Up next is the teaching segment from this week's Sunday Gathering. Afterwards, stay tuned for more information on how to get connected at Redemption. James 5 is where I'm going to be starting with. Uh, Before we dive into James 5, um, as somebody who absolutely loves the Bible, a Bible nerd, I I do teach high school Bible classes. Uh, My favorite is biblical interpretation, so I love to talk about all the nerdy stuff of the Bible. Um, When we're looking at James, there's some really cool things about James that should help shape our perspective as we read the things that he has to say. First of all, he was Jesus' brother. Now, he's human just like the rest of us, but that does mean that he spent a lot of years hearing the things that Jesus had to say, even if he didn't want to hear him at the time. Uh, when, when he talks, he seems like a pretty decent source to understand the, uh, the teachings of Jesus. Um, and, and as we read James, he doesn't really directly cite Jesus. But as you're reading it, if you know the teachings of Jesus, you'll see that he's paraphrasing them left and right, especially the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, number two, when you're reading the, the document that we call James, it is arguably the first New Testament document in Scripture, the oldest of them. Um, that's, that's pretty cool. When you're, when you're interacting with James... The first hearers of James didn't have a Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John to interact with. This literally was one of the first documents. And so this kind of gives us insight into what the the earliest Christians were wrestling with. And for me, I find that really humbling to be a part of that conversation. Um, James literally is one of the OG writings for the church. Um, Also, we don't spend a lot of time talking about James. When we're talking about theology, we, we go to... Peter and Paul, but I think we've got that a little bit wrong. James is not just a little book that's tucked in at the back of our Bible. Um, If you had lived in the early church, James actually would have been the primary voice you might have turned to up until he dies in the early 60s. We actually see in Scripture that both Paul and Peter were willingly submitted to James' leadership. When James spoke, Peter and Paul got quiet and listened to hear what God had to say through James. So it's not just this book that's tucked in the back of the Bible. It's it's something that's significant and and should challenge us to humbly hear what what God's saying through James. Okay, so um, I'm going to go to James 5, and I'm going to be starting with, with verse 13 and see what he has to say here. This is his closing thoughts to this letter that he wrote, and it is a letter from a real person two real people interacting with their real situation. We're peeking at his, his emails. So James 5.13 um, says, Is anyone among you in trouble? More directly, we could say it as, Is anyone among you facing troubles? Let me ask you, Is anybody in here facing troubles? Do you have 
physical issues that you're struggling with? Do you have emotional issues that you're struggling with? Um, do you have issues where, with coworkers, friends, your spouse? Do you have troubles? I will raise my hand and say, yes, I have troubles. Um, okay, great. Well, then this is for us. His answer is really simple. Pray. It's not a flippant answer. He's saying this is serious. If you have troubles, pray. Then um, in the NIV, it says, is anyone happy? Depending on what translation you have, it might say cheerful. Um, there's a couple other possible words that could be there. It's kind of misleading. The Greek word under that has a couple of different meanings. For example, um, in Acts 27, 25, we see that Paul is on a Roman ship, and the Roman ship looks like it's going to face some trials, and as, as Paul is speaking to these Roman sailors, he tells them to have courage, and it's the same Greek word. So where it says, is anyone happy, just see it as, do you have something in your life that's going well? Are you doing good inside? Are you confident in your faith? Um, do you feel healthy in all these different ways? Let them sing songs of praise, another form of prayer. Let them pray. Really simple. Are you facing troubles? Pray. Are things going well for you? Pray. Uh, I don't know about you guys, but for me, I would say that my life has a mixture of both, so I should pray. Um, there's a reason he says the second part, though, is anyone happy? Because we spend a lot of time praying as if God is our genie and he's just there to do things for us. But it's important to remember that we're in a relationship with God. We need to say things are good. We need to thank him for the things that are good. I'm in a relationship with my wife. I can't just talk to her when things are not going well between us. It's also important to tell her that she is beautiful and that I dearly love her and she's my best friend and I'm blessed to be with her, right? If I don't remember to balance out the, the conversation, we don't have much of a relationship. But the focus of what James wants us to look at is our troubles. He continues on. Is anyone among you sick? Another word you could put there is weak. Is something going on with you? If that's the case, then call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. Where it says elders of the church, in the letter of James, he spends a lot of time actually breaking down hierarchies and just talking about the fellowship of the believers as equals at the table. This is not a title here. In our church, we have people with the title elder. We have Bob, Cindy, Robert, right? He's not talking about a titled position here. He's saying, who are the mature Christians around you? If you're struggling right now, bring some of the mature Christians around you to come and walk with you, join you in prayer, join you in fellowship, community. Why? So that they can pray over you. And then he says, anoint them with oil. Oil's a tricky thing to talk about right now, especially if you've filled your car recently. Um, the oil here has a couple of different purposes. Um, often it can be used in a medicinal way. In the story of the Good Samaritan, uh, we see that the Samaritan comes along and um, when he encounters the injured man, he uh, medicinally uses both oil and wine to treat his wounds. But oil also can have a sacramental element to it. Um, and the word anoint there kind of points to that context of it, where it's, when you anoint something, you, you dedicate it, you consecrate it, you, you're, you're setting it aside, 
And what it's saying is, let the mature Christians come along with you and pray for you and pray with you. And then, it's a, the, then the, the oil is kind of symbolic of setting you aside and saying, God, this is in your hands, but we faithfully believe that and trust that it's in your hands. And that's made clear by saying that this is done in the name of the Lord. And then he goes on to say, the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. This is a tricky statement. I don't know if you've ever prayed for somebody and not had it go the way you hoped it would. It makes it sound like James is misleading here. Prayer offered in faith. Prayer offered according to God's will, like recognizing that you believe that God will respond to your prayer. But we know that God does not always answer prayers the way we want. The, the Apostle Paul prays to God to remove what he calls a thorn in his side, and God does not do it. He says, no, my grace is sufficient in this. James understands these concepts. The point here is to hand things over in faith to God and know that he will handle it the way that he deems appropriate. But there's also the emphasis that God can and does bring miraculous healings. You might ask yourself, how come I haven't seen that? That's a great question. It's a great question for all of us, especially in the Western context where we seem to not see that so much. I wonder if that statement in faith might point us to the right answer. And then he continues on. And it becomes really tricky with what he says next. If they've sinned, they will be forgiven. Well, wait a minute. We were just talking about healing somebody who's struggling with physical issues. Why are we talking about being forgiven? If I have a cold, it's not because I need to be forgiven. What's going on here? Well, it's kind of a separate thought and a connected thought at the same time. Um, in, the, in the ancient world, uh, it was common to see sin as being the cause of physical issues. Not always, though. They had the book of Job. They understood that that's not always the issue. Um, I think there's some truth to it. When you have struggles in life, when you're not emotionally and spiritually well, it does impact your physical health sometimes, right? He's acknowledging that. But he's also acknowledging that sin in itself is a sickness. And he says, if you've prayed, the sins will be forgiven. Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. It's not very comfortable to confess to each other. That's a rough one. I, I, one of my struggles is I can be kind of a perfectionist. I certainly don't want to admit to you that I'm not perfect. I'm married. I'm a father. I'm also a teacher. These are all areas where I'm reminded over and over again that I'm not perfect. Um, but I don't like to admit it. But here's the beauty of this. When somebody was physically sick, he said for them to call in mature believers to come around them and walk with them through that journey. Here he says, when you've sinned, when you have a different sickness, bring people around you and let them go with you on that journey. As Western Christians, we like our individuality. I will deal with my problems myself. We need to know that that is actually a very unbiblical perspective. Um, the, the Christian life that we see in Scripture is not an individual path. 
we do it in the community of believers. So look around the room. This is your family. You're blessed by each other. We are blessed with each other. And we need to be able to go to each other for confession and for guidance and for fellowship and community. And, and God uses the prayers of the community. Says, he closes out this paragraph with, the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Do you believe that about your prayers? Your prayers are powerful and effective. Um, one of the classes I teach is modern American history. We spend a big section looking at the Cold War, and we look at this whole idea of literally the President of the United States had a phone that went directly to the leader of Russia. He could call him and ask him his order for McDonald's for the day or whatever he wanted to talk to him about. It was a direct line. Do you recognize that you have a direct line to the Almighty Creator? Do you recognize the power of that direct line? It's, it's, it's amazing. It's powerful. And when you pick up the phone and call God, it's powerful and effective. Believe that. Okay, so your question might be, Look, I've read scriptures. I see stories of people, Moses, Abraham, David, Elijah, all these different people in scripture. They do all these great, amazing things. They pray for these things that are awesome. That's not me. I'm just Kyle. Well, James thinks you're going to go there. And so that's why he jumps into the next section. Uh, may I have the next slide, sir? Thank you. All right. So Elijah. Elijah is important. Moses and Elijah are two of the most important of the prophets, according to uh, Jewish understanding. They love Moses, they love Elijah. So James specifically pulls Elijah out. He says, okay, so great Elijah. You don't think you're as cool as Elijah? You're wrong. Elijah was just a human being like you. He just believed that prayers are powerful and effective, and he was in relationship with God. He prayed earnestly, and great things happened when he prayed earnestly because he was in touch with the will of God and he believed that his prayers were powerful and effective. You are no different than Elijah in your power, the power of your prayers. All right, and then we jump to the last section. He says, okay, so now that you know that your prayers are powerful and effective, you have an obligation. Before it was talking about what happens if you have struggles, now it talks about your obligation as the community of believers. He starts it off where he says, my brothers and sisters, that's us. We are his brothers and sisters. If one of you should wander from the truth, if anyone among you should wander from the truth, which means you're in relationship with each other enough to know when somebody's wandering, from the truth, and someone should bring that person back. Remember this. And again, remember the emphasis was prayer. Prayer is a big part of bringing that person back. Remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of their ways will save them from death. Your missional prayers and your missional activity that comes from your prayers can save people from death, separation from God. 
and it covers over a multitude of sins. That's an interesting phrasing. That phrase, cover over, should kind of appoint us, appoint us to the idea of the atonement in Leviticus 16, where we see the, the people of, of Israel um, to cover their sins. The priest has um, sacrificed an animal and takes the blood and, and splashes it on the atonement cover. And through that process, it's, it's uh, a way of covering the sins of the people. What he's telling you is you are the priests responsible for the people around you. Again, your calling is a powerful calling. It's powerful and effective. You are called to be the priests for your brothers and sisters. And when you reach out to people missionally and you've prayed for them missionally, you can bring them back from death and it covers all of their sins. The reset button is pushed. That's pretty powerful. Um, so when we look at this, praying is not just simply a, a rhyme that we say at dinner time or a little prayer at dinner time. It's not necessarily just something we read out of a quick little devotional and move on with our day because we've checked the box. Prayer is powerful. It's life-changing. It's life-bringing. The question is, do we believe that? To go with this continued thought of, of the idea of mission, that the, the prayers that we pray should be missional, um, this idea of what James just talked about here, this is not the only time we see it in Scripture. Um, I'm going to jump to Matthew 18. Told you that James refers to a lot of concepts that uh, that uh, Jesus has also taught, and in Matthew 18, Jesus talks about this section that churches use a lot to talk about church discipline. When you hear it, it'll sound familiar, I'm sure. Verse 18, uh, chapter 18, verse 15 of Matthew. If your brothers or sisters sin, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. You're their priests. Go, talk to them with love and care. It's nurturing. It's not jumping up and shouting out that I'm perfect and you're not. Um, it's just saying, hey, brother, sister, I'm in relationship with you, so I already know how you're struggling. Let me talk to you about that. How can I walk with you in that? If they listen to you, you've won them over. If they will not listen, take one or two others along. Uh, established Christians who are healthy and can come and, and mentor, and it continues on. If they refuse to listen, tell it to the church, because we are all a community. What happens in our community affects everyone. If they refuse to listen, even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. I've often been taught that this is meaning that we are supposed to shun them if they won't listen to the church community. I have a different thought process here for you. Jesus is, is sharing this information. Let me ask you, how did Jesus treat the pagan and the tax collector? I can think of two tax collector examples right off the top of my head. When he approaches Matthew Levi sitting at the tax collector booth, he says, follow me, come be one of my disciples. Let's go party at your house tonight. They go and party. And in fact, people hate on him for the party. You're hanging out with sinners and tax collectors. And he said, yes, I am. When he approaches Zacchaeus, before Zacchaeus even gets a chance to say anything, Jesus says, hey, can I come hang out at your house for dinner? 
and they throw a party. How did Jesus handle the tax collectors? He didn't shun them. He loved them. He sought them. If we are praying missionally and our hearts are being transformed in a missional manner, when we see people who others might treat as outsiders, God's call to us is to welcome them, not shun them, to love them, to missionally seek them. That's what I see here. Treat them as you would the person who needs your love and care. And lest you think I'm making this up, right after this, uh, I don't have a slide on it, but Peter says, how many times do I forgive somebody who's sinned against me? Up to seven times. And Jesus says, not seven times, but 77 times. Another way to look at the context is to also look at what comes before it. What happens right before it? So I was telling you from starting at verse 15, if I just go back to verse 12, it says, if a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the 99 on the hills and go to look for the one that's wandered off? If he finds it, truly I tell you, he is happier about that one sheep than about the 99 that did not wander off. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should perish. Our life should be centered in a missional fashion that's looking towards the people who need our love and our prayer. Not to shun them, not to call them outsiders, but to bring them in. So if somebody has struggled and they're, they're not at a place where they're being receptive yet, that's okay. Go have dinner with them. That's what Jesus did. But to do this, it requires prayer. You are not the Messiah, Jesus is. Connect with him. Our prayers should be missional. All right. So how do we get to a place of having missional prayer? Um, maybe you're somebody who's like, I don't even know where to start with prayer. And that's valid. Prayer's an odd concept. Um, if, if you take your, your faith element out of it, when you're praying, you're talking to the air. Right, that's a little awkward, that's a little odd. So we kind of have to sh walk through a formational pro process of, of getting used to interacting with God. When, um, when I first met my best friend, Heather, my amazing wife, Heather, we met, uh, she, she got in my car to, to get a ride to church, January 9th, 2005, that was her mistake. Um, as drastically different from each other that we are. We are extremely drastically different people. We come from very different backgrounds. I even had piercings in my face at the time. Um, very, I came from a, a troubled household, a troubled background. Heather's perfect. She's, she was then, she still is now. Um, very, very different people. But we instantly became best friends. I hate when my phone rings. It makes me mad. You might find this odd, but I actually managed a customer service department with high volume phone calls and stuff. I trained in that area, but I still hate the phone. I've always hated it. FaceTime's even worse. Don't try FaceTiming me, I might not answer. I hate it. But as soon as Heather and I became best friends, which literally was instant, um, within about 24 hours, we, we clicked. We couldn't stop talking to each other. We ended up actually doing a lot of ministry stuff together at the time. We spent a lot of time together. And then we'd go home, and one or the other would call the person anyway after we'd been around each other for hours. And then we would talk on the phone for hours. It was not infrequent for us to get off at 2, 3, 4, 5 o'clock in the morning, even though I had to get up for work 
to be there by 7. I wanted to know who she was. I wanted to be in communication with her. I wanted to hear from her so badly that as much as I hated the phone, I stayed on the phone. Um, she used to say, you need to go to sleep. You need to get sleep. And I would say sleep is overrated. Um, when I'm too tired to do the things that she asked me to do, now I hear that fired back at me. I thought sleep was overrated. Um, it's well-deserved. All right. Um, when we are praying, it's the same thing, though. It's sharing about where we're at with God. It's stopping long enough to listen from God. It's dwelling in God's presence. It's purposefully seeking Him. I couldn't help but call my wife. How long does it take her to get home? Okay, she's home by now. I'm going to call her. We still have the problem. We can't stop talking. I love it. It's a blessing. Um, so how do we take this, this idea of prayer and turn it into something that becomes a pattern for us, a center in our life? The early church had some examples, and I'm going to explain those examples to you real fast and encourage you to adopt them. Um, I'm going to go nerdy on you again. Um, I'm going to pull out a text called the Didache. Has anybody heard of the Didache? This is a classic, classic first century text. It was, it's not in our scriptures, but it was a book that all of them, it was a writing that all of them knew. Um, I guess we could look at it like a formational manual, like, okay? And I'm looking in chapter 8. And in chapter 8, he sa it says, Don't pray like the hypocrites. Instead, pray like this, just as the Lord commanded in his gospel. And then he goes through, and he tells them to pray the Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one, for yours is the power and the glory forever. You might note that it's got an ending on there that you don't see in Matthew 6, but that's the one that we say in the Lord's Prayer. You get it from the Didache. Okay, well, here's the part I want you to see. This is what the author of the Didache instructs them to do. Verse 3 of the chapter 8 says, Pray like this three times a day. They set up specific times to make sure that no matter how busy their life was, they were going to start, stop right then and pray. Recenter themselves back on God. I challenge you, do that. They did this morning, noon, and night. They stopped and said the Lord's Prayer. And the cool thing is, is that if in the morning and at noon and in the evening, I stop and say the Lord's Prayer, and Matt does the same thing, even though we're not in the same location, we're still praying this as a community together. Isn't that kind of beautiful? Isn't that powerful? And you could say, well, this is just repeating a prayer over and over again. Yes, but this prayer is formational. I would love to break, through, break down the prayer and all the different elements of it. But this prayer tells us how to see ourselves as people of God. What should our mindset be? How should we be missional? How do we pray that God's kingdom comes, and what does that look like? One other thing that I wanted to show you is that in, in Deuteronomy 6, where Moses is instructing the people of Israel, um, he says to them, 
chapter 6 of Deuteronomy, starting at verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. You maybe have heard this before. This is coming from Deuteronomy. But then he continues on. He says, These commandments I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands. Bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the doorframe of your houses and on your gates. They took this literal. They actually had a leather strap that they would sometimes have on their arm. They saw it. They know it's time to say this prayer. The Shema. The word here is, is Shema in Hebrew. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. If you say that over and over again, it's part of a ritual of your life. It's where your life is centered, right? And the thing is, is they would not only have the leather band, they had this thing that they put on their head that they would also use to pray through it. They would, they would take physical actions to remind themselves to pray. On all the door frames of their houses, they would put this thing there that they, when they enter the house, they see it and they remember to pray the Shema. Um, I, I tortured Heather a couple weeks ago by making her watch Fiddler on the Roof. She'd never seen it before. It's an epic classic, for sure. If you don't know the story of Fiddler on the Roof, it is the story of a... a, a Jewish man and his family um, in, in Russia, early, early 1900s. And every time they enter a house, you'll notice really quickly they touch the thing on the doorframe as they enter to remind them to pray this prayer, the Shema. Okay, well, that's what they did, that, uh, but, but we were, we're Christians. What do we do? Well, now I'm going to jump over to Mark 12. In Mark 12, a teacher of the law approaches Jesus and, and asks him about of all the commandments, which is the most important. And in verse 29 of Mark 12, he says, the most important one is this. Hear, O Israel. This prayer. The most important one is to pray the prayer that you guys have been praying all along. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, with all your strength, with all of who you are. Love the Lord your God. Then he adds this extra piece out of Leviticus onto it, and he says the second one is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. That's missional. If we recognize that we're God's people, then we recognize that we need to love the way that God loves. We need to love our neighbor as ourself. Now, if you're wanting to understand how to shift your prayers to a missional prayer, I encourage you, I challenge you, morning, noon, and night, Set a timer on your phone and stop and pray this updated Christian version of the Shema. James calls this the royal law. He talks about this. Um, there's a New Testament scholar, Scott McKnight. He calls this the Jesus Creed. This is it. This is if you want to know everything that you believe, it's to love the Lord your God with all of who you are and to love your neighbor as yourself. Pray this and pray the Lord's Prayer three times a day. Put it on your mirror. Put it on the doorframe of your house. Set an alarm on your phone to have it go off periodically. And as you do that, you will build a formation that makes you stop and remember, I am one of God's people, and I love my neighbor. Think about how that would work for you if you were in a meeting that's really frustrating and long and somebody's annoying you, and all of a sudden your phone 
gives you a little vibration that tells you you're supposed to pray this real fast? How might that shape your interaction with your neighbor? When uh, you're getting ready to go spend time with your family, that, you know, the family members that you dread sometimes, if this was to go off while you're driving in the car on the way there and you stopped and prayed this prayer, and then you also prayed the Lord's Prayer with it, formational prayers for us, how would that shape us? And over time, it will stop be something that we have to consciously think about and just randomly, you're doing the dishes and all of a sudden you'll think, maybe I should pray this right now. It'll start shaping you. And of course, from there, you can add your own parts too. You can talk about the things that trouble you. You can talk about the neighbor that you know, the, the brother or sister in Christ that's struggling. But start with this liturgy. Let it shape you. One more thing about my wife and I. As I told you, we seem to never stop talking to each other. Um, and, but yet we're very drastically different people. The other day, I don't even remember what the issue was, but my daughter Lila came to us and brought some issue. I'm sure it was significantly important to her at the time. And she, she came and she said it to us. My wife and I were both in the room, but we weren't even looking at each other. And we both immediately responded with the same playfully sarcastic response to her. Word for word. In, in elementary school, you would have shouted, you know, like, jinx at the moment. Like, it, we perfectly said it perfectly. How did two drastically people, different people develop a sarcastic humor that's word for word? The liturgy of spending time together intentionally and slowly becoming one. As you use liturgy to become the pattern, the rule of your life, it helps you to start seeing things the way Jesus does. All right. Um, so these are my challenges. One, I challenge you to make the Lord's Prayer not just something that they say in church every once in a while, but part of your daily liturgy. I challenge you to pray the, um, the Jesus Creed, the royal law, the, the Christian Shema, on a regular basis. Put things up around your house, around your life. Put it on the rear view mirror in your car, something. Put it something there to help you remember to pray it. Here's another one. Start finding people to confess to. You don't have to stand up in front of church and shout out all the horrible things that you do. But find a, a, a mature believer that you can confide in and that they can confide in you because that's relationship building. All right. I am going to wrap up. So if um, the worship team wants to join me, that would be great. Um, as we wrap up, I want to ask if we can say the Lord's Prayer together as a community. Um, if, if you'd be willing to throw that slide back up. If you all would join me as we, we say this prayer together. Um, and then we're going to move into communion. Our Father, who is in heaven, holy is your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts 
as we have forgiven our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. We're going to move into communion. Communion is also another beautiful formational liturgy that we have. Um, the beauty of communion is that as we practice communion, it gives us an opportunity to reflect on who Christ is and what he's done and what he is still doing. It also gives us an opportunity to participate with him in his, in his death. So this is what I would like to ask you to do. Before you come up and partake in the communion, I would like to ask you to take a moment. You can pray with somebody that's nearby you or pray on your own if you'd like for today. But take a moment to confess your sins and take a moment to open your heart to God, to pray to him and to listen to him and reflect on him before you come up and participate in this uh, sacrament, this liturgy. Thanks again for listening. Make sure to subscribe to get the weekly episodes in your podcast feed. You can find out more on how to get connected with Redemption Hill at redemptionboise.org slash connection, where you can fill out the Connect card and start your journey today. For regular encouragement throughout the week, follow us on Instagram at redemptionboise. We are so glad you're here and are excited to accompany you in your story with God. We hope to see you soon.